Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. I'm Serena. And today we are interviewing Kim Siever. Kim, how are you today? I'm well. Thank you very much for having me on today. Good. We're excited to have you here. Let me take a moment before we jump in to say... Holy Human is a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. If you haven't been listening to Fireside lately, Blair Hodges is absolutely killing it. You need to check out his more recent episodes. Episode 7 is where he interviews Anthea Butler, who is the author of White Evangelical Racism. Episode 8 is where he interviews John Swinson, who talks about disability, timefulness, and discipleship. Then episode 10, he interviews our own Taylor Petrie of Dialogue, who wrote Tabernacles of Clay, and they discuss sexuality and gender in Mormonism. Every single episode, all three of these blew my mind. I learned so much from each interviewee and author. And Blair Hodges, thank you for your work over at Fireside Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Dialogue Podcast Network or Dialogue's work, you can go to dialoguejournal.com. Kim, we'll just kind of get right into things. Why don't you introduce yourself? So my name is Kim Siever. I live in Lethbridge, Alberta, here in Canada. I have been married to my spouse for almost 27 years. We have six children. Our two oldest are grown and not currently living with us. And a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a almost 7-year-old still living at home. I'm an independent journalist, and I've been doing that for almost two years, where I focus mostly on regional political news. And I'm an active member of the church. My family joined the church back in 1978 mm-hmm. when I was in elementary school in Saskatchewan, in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is the next province over. I served the mission in the Utah Provo Mission in the early 90s and served in various callings throughout my adult life. My disabilities are arthritis and asthma. Those are the two that I um, deal with the most. I also have back problems like kyphosis and scoliosis, but those won't affect me too much. And my neurodivergence is ADHD. You're so cool already. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, not not that you like just started being cool in the last couple minutes. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for journalists. <laughs> Yeah, being an independent journalist, I have the freedom to be able to say what I want and not have to worry about any pushback mm. from editors or anything like that. That's ideal. Yeah, just I have a website that I run and yeah, I just write for myself. I write a news article every day. Wow, that's really cool. Kim, what are your pronouns? He, him. He, him. And do you have a preference between identity first language or person first language with disability? Mm, I I think I primarily look at person first only because with my disabilities it's unusual to call somebody arthritic or asthmatic so I usually will say that I have 
asthma or I have arthritis or I have ADHD rather than using them as adjectives. Okay. Do you use any mobility devices? No. I mean, sometimes I probably should use a cane or something, but it's only once in a while if I've been on my feet too long or whatever. Mm. Okay. So your energy changes. Um, no, <clears throat> not my energy. It's that I, um, I'll, I'll get sore joints, painful joints, and I'm walking, so I'll end up limping. Just so, like, I, I could probably use, like, a cane or something in order to take the weight off and mm-hmm. avoid some of the pain. But it's generally because my right leg is half an inch shorter than my left leg, and so it carries more of my body weight. I used to work at a job where I was on my feet all the time, and then when I would finish my shift, my feet would be in pain. So that sort mm-hmm. of thing. If I'm, you know, helping somebody move for six hours, then I'd probably end up having ankle pain afterwards. But usually because I have a desk job and I just work from home and stuff, it's not usually an issue. Nice. Thank goodness you're at a different job that works better for your body now. Yeah. I had some jobs when I was in my early 20s that were not good on my body and it probably accelerated things for me, but Mm. there's no way I could do that now. Yeah. Well, we wanted to start talking about ADHD initially. What was your diagnosis journey like? Well, the vast majority of my life, I went undiagnosed. I was only diagnosed in February 2019. Oh, wow. So, yeah, our oldest was pretty sure they had ADHD. And so after some coaxing from us, we were able to get them tested. And part of the testing process involved questionnaires. So we would ask you if you experience a particular thing, and then you would say rate on a scale of how much you experience it. So it could be like anywhere from often to never or rarely. Mm-hmm. And as I was filling out, I was like, well, some of these seem to describe me. <laughs> so we met with our general practitioner, and then she referred us to a psychiatrist. And then when we were meeting with him in the first session, one of the questions I had asked him is if ADHD is hereditary. And he said, yeah, uh, a lot of the time uh, children who have ADHD have it because one of their parents has it. And then that made me think. And so mm. I went and ended up having a, another doctor's appointment with our GP for me. And she referred me to a, a psychiatrist and I went and saw him and I couldn't remember anything when I was younger because I was never diagnosed. And so no one kept track of whether I exhibited characteristics of ADHD. Mm-hmm. And so he said, because you didn't seem to experience it as a child, I can't diagnose you. <gasps> yeah, it was heartbroken because of it. Wow. And then our second oldest, he thought, well, maybe I have it too. And so he went and to the same psychiatrist ended up getting diagnosed as well. But when I was up with the GP, I asked her if I could get a referral to a different psychiatrist rather than mm. that first one. Yeah, and then so that was in February of 2019, and he diagnosed me on the spot. Then by that point, I had done some more research, and I was able mm. to become more familiar with the symptoms rather than you know the more popular ones. And I was able to see some things from my childhood as well. And after I explained some of the symptoms that I experience now and some of the experiences I had when I was younger, he said, yeah, I wholeheartedly am confident that you have ADHD. And he says, well, I'll put you on some medication and we'll see how you respond to it. And 
I told him, well, I generally don't respond to medication, not just the ADHD, but in general, like pain medication, headache medication, whatever. I don't generally respond to it. So I'm not sure how much of an effect this will have. And he said, that's fine. We'll try it. This is really super strong and, and we'll see how it goes. Sure enough, it didn't make much of a difference for me. And so I went back for a follow-up. I'm in a few days later and he says, oh, okay, well, I guess you don't have ADHD yet then. And I said, (laughs) because I didn't respond to medication, that means all of a sudden your complete confidence that I had ADHD doesn't mean anything anymore. (laughs) Forget it. I'm just going to go with your first diagnosis. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And even after you warned him, I might not respond. That is just wow. And so um, I've taken that same medication in the past. And what it does do, even though it doesn't like help me focus or give me clarity it does keep me more alert which is useful because um mm-hmm. sometimes i'll if i'm doing something that's boring i might fall asleep while i'm doing it especially if i'm at the computer <coughs> narcolepsy <coughs> <laughs> serena's like that sounds familiar <laughs> so that helps me or if i'm driving like if i'm driving up to calgary for an appointment or something it keeps me alert while i'm driving so but I, that's the only effect it has on me and then we have had two other children test positive for ADHD and my spouse was diagnosed with ADHD as well. So. Oh, wow. A very neurodivergent family. That's awesome. Yeah. And see, part of the problem was that every time our oldest would tell us they think they have ADHD because of this, this, and this, and this, my spouse and I would say, that's just normal behavior. <laughs> yeah. Normal behavior from our viewpoint is ADHD. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. Huh. So it's been a journey as a family, which is really unique. You know, normally it's like an individual, like kind of lonely journey when you're trying to get a diagnosis and trying to advocate for yourself. That's really cool. I think a lot of families that are neurodivergent and are open to learning more about neurodiversity, a lot of them, if one of them gets a diagnosis, it really does open up the whole family and then they <laughs> realize that they're they're all ADHD or they're all autistic or half of them are ADHD, half of them are autistic and the other half, oh, that's that's like what that's like 150%. Anyway, um, are, are both, you know, I wouldn't have realized perhaps I was autistic until dad married my stepmom and she's autistic, but she didn't have a diagnosis until I think my stepbrother, who's like nine years old, he had his diagnosis first and then my stepsister and then my stepmom, but I'm not sure I might be wrong about the order there. But she also has ADHD. And then I learned that I'm autistic and I'm trying to get an official diagnosis, not for validation because I already am confident in my diagnosis, but for university accommodations because I want to go back to grad school. Now I'm like... (laughs) trying to convince my dad (laughs) that he's autistic because I'm pretty damn sure (laughs) as he's just got a lot of habits he's picked up trying to just like adapt to a neuronormative world you know point is I do think it is common for neurodivergent people especially ADHD and autistic people to one of them gets diagnosed and then the whole family just kind of follows maybe it's not that way for other diagnoses well my mom's narcoleptic, I'm narcoleptic, and I have a narcoleptic little sister. So it kind of is that way for that, too. So I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes neurodiversity is a, a kind of a weird thing that way. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not weird. It's a great thing. But 
Sometimes it's okay to be weird. Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask him, you mentioned the second time you went to a psychiatrist, you had learned more about ADHD, including some symptoms or traits that you had that were not as well known. I'm curious which symptoms, traits those were, especially if we have followers who are wondering if they have ADHD and would like to know more about the less commonly known traits. Sure, yeah. So some of the more common ones, when people think ADHD is hyperactivity, and even that doesn't manifest in ways that people would expect. So Mm. a lot of times um, hyperactivity could just be as simple as fidgeting. We have one child who would get up and leave his primary class. That's definitely an example of hyperactivity. But sometimes people will play with their pen or bounce their knee or drum their fingers or stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's fidgeting. Or they might chew the inside of their cheek or lick their lips or stuff like that. Those are all examples of hyperactivity. But then there are other ones too, like memory issues. So forgetting things Mm. and missing appointments difficulty regulating your emotions so you Mm. might have emotional outbursts it could be getting easily angered with our youngest her emotional outbursts are often like giving people hugs oh yeah telling them that she loves them and stuff like that she does it all the time so it just it varies with some people Mm -hmm. and then impulsivity as well so it's not just like just doing things generally without thinking about it but it's just it could be things like touching people or like our second youngest he probably was more impulsive than the other children but he would constantly get into things when he was younger like Mm -hmm. just being very impulsive but the impulsivity could also as you're an adult you know not being able to control your finances because you will just buy things that you want and even if you can't afford it and so we have lots of examples of that in our life as a married mm. couple where we bought things that we didn't need and ended up going into you know tens of thousands of dollars in debt because of it. Mm. So those are some of the major ones. And there can also be um, relationship issues. People with ADHD have a tendency to seek out behaviors that reward their dopamine receptors. And mm. that could include seeking out relationships with other people even if they're already in a committed relationship so if they get Mm -hmm. there could also be speech problems i have an issue with stuttering and so i've been able to manage it over the years where i will usually just pause in order to allow my mouth to catch up with my brain yeah so a lot of these things i've been able to develop coping mechanisms over the years because i didn't realize that I had ADHD and I was just had had to find ways to deal with with the with these characteristics that didn't so they wouldn't interrupt my life too much. Yeah. I'm glad that I live in the the time that I do where we have you know electronic devices with reminders and calendars and mm. things. First married, we were constantly missing appointments because we had no way of keeping track of them and things like that. So didn't think anything about it at the time. Yeah. That makes sense. So you just had to be creative and come up with your own coping mechanisms because you didn't know about your diagnosis. That's interesting. Yeah, so I went my entire life without being medicated and just naturally coming up with solutions to help me make sure I didn't forget stuff. Or And even then, it's not foolproof. There's been times when I've left one of the doors on our vehicle open all night long or I'll 
put bread in the oven to rise and then forget that it's in there and turn the oven on to make supper and then ruin the batch of bread or whatever it happens to be. Never forgotten any of our children or anything like that. So, <laughs> Since you were undiagnosed growing up, what was it like growing up in the church with undiagnosed ADHD? Well, the church is really boring for me. And so I've just had to learn to force myself to sit through the meetings. I think the church has been doing a better job the last few years, particularly with like Sunday school and the other meetings, non-sacrament meetings. They used to have the manuals where you could basically just read the manual <laughs> aloud, and I would just get bored because I mean I could read the manual, and so I didn't mm -hmm. need anybody up there reading it to me. And I would just mm -hmm. get extremely bored in those situations. Or if we're reading a conference address or whatever else, I flourish more in meetings where there's discussion mm. um, because I, I can participate in that a little bit more. I can engage more with it. But it's just a lecture, which is what sacrament meeting is. So it's always been something that's been difficult for me. And my parents were pretty strict about being reverent. And so I would just find ways to use my imagination. Like I would pretend I'm a spy or, or a robot or something. And my finger would it would transform into a screwdriver and I would take the screws out of the pew in front of me here. <laughs> I love that. Actually, this one time I was pretending I was a spy and I was probably like 12 or 13. And I was pretending the battery in my watch was, you know, a secret microfilm or something. And I had hit it in my ear canal. And uh, I couldn't get it out. And then it was stuck in my ear and I was freaking out. I have to tell my parents. And I was like, I didn't want to tell my parents. But they're asking, how did it get in there? Eventually, I did break down. And I told my mom, hey, mom, I have a sore ear. Could you take a look? I'm not sure what's going on. Like, what the heck is in there? And they just took it like a magnet and popped it out. It wasn't a big deal. And so, yeah, that's what happens when you're bored at church. So. Oh my gosh, that's great. I'm like imagining you imagining your finger as a screwdriver in the pews in front of you and just slowly unscrewing and like making an excuse to be like, oh, hey, mom, I actually want to go sit next to dad so you can get to the screws on the other side and then just waiting <laughs> until the last screw and then the people in front of you just like all fall on their butts. Anyway, <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> When I was growing up, I bounced my knees a lot in sacrament, mm. a lot. My mom would always have to reach over and grab my leg, so I would stop bouncing my leg. Oof. Are there certain topics at church that you find more engaging than others? Mm, I'm not sure. I do find as far as sacrament meeting goes, if the speaker is particularly engaging, see, this is one of the drawbacks of having a lay ministry where anybody can mm. get up and give a talk is that a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with public speaking. And so they'll just read their talks and which isn't, I mean, I just read my talks, but I also have a theater degree. And so I will mm. work on enunciation and emphasis and things like that. But so for some people, you know, they're just, they write out their talk and they just read it word for word and not really put much emphasis into what they're saying. And so that can be a little bit monotonous and hard for me to keep track of. But then the other people are really engaging in their talk. And some people are just off the cuff. And even 
and that can be engaging sometimes, but even in other times, that's not necessarily a guarantee because some people just ramble on, you know, for their 15 yeah. minutes. And that's mm-hmm. not engaging either. If I can sense that there's some structure to the message that they're trying to communicate, then I can keep following along. Mm-hmm. But if I can't detect some structure to it, then I lose interest in that as well. So it really depends. But as far as topics go, I'm not sure that there are particular topics. I guess it's more along the lines of how they're presented. Mm, that makes sense. So do you feel like the structure of how they teach church and how they invite you to learn more and grow your testimony, do you feel like your neurodivergence, the way the structure taught it, that it affected how you were active in the church or how you grew your testimony? Does that make, uh, I don't know, that question makes sense. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I think so. Um, okay. When I was a teenager, I was really apathetic towards the church. My mm-hmm. intention was when I was 18, I just, I wasn't going to go anymore. I didn't really have any problems with doctrinally or anything like that. It just wasn't a high priority to me. And then after I graduated high school, I ended up getting a girlfriend who was a recent convert. And she was really gotten whole about the gospel and everything. Changed my viewpoint and convinced me to go on a mission and that sort of thing. And then it just sort of went on from there. So I'm not sure how much ADHD played into that apathy. It's possible. I wonder how much church culture and how we talk about like how to gain a testimony and how to pay attention in church. I wonder how much that affects your testimony growth and your activity rather than the other way around. You know what I mean? Rather than ADHD Mm. being the problem, quote unquote, like if the church was more accepting and understanding, knowledgeable about neurodivergence, how much that would change how we teach in church? I think that's probably a good point because generally speaking, I think the approach is that everything has to be adapted for the church meetings rather than, you know, having the church meetings accommodate people's needs. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think that might be changing. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. in some capacities, there's still, you still have this expectation. Like when you go to primary, you learn in the songs that you have to fold your arms and bow your head and don't shuffle your feet and sit still in your seat and Hopefully with, you know, some of the changes to curriculum, we can see some more of that adaptation. But as far as testimony goes, I feel like the church's approach to gaining a testimony is pretty open-ended. You know, we just pray and and study and seek it out in your mind. But what that's going to look like for people, what studying it out in your mind is going to look like for people or praying about is going to look like for people, I think that might vary. And so, yeah, it's hard to say for sure. I kind of want to go through the primary songbook now and count how many of the songs are like just egregiously like annoying to me and like ableist in my opinion, you know, (laughs) or like even not just that, like I wonder if there's like racist songs that we have in there or just like, I don't know, my mind is always like jumping to criticize, but that's just the way my brain works. Uh, if they're releasing a new adult hymn book, one might think that the primary songbook is next, right? Yes. Yeah. They did talk about how they're doing both. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. 
I don't know if there's still room to offer suggestions. That might be an opportunity to extend to people to encourage them to write the church and be like, uh, can we be more open about letting kids be kids and affirming their neurodivergencies? Also, I think it would be really funny <laughs> if I had a poem that got turned into a hymn for the church after I left the church. <laughs> I've written quite a bit of poetry as well, and I considered submitting okay. some poetry during that open call. But most of my poetry is focused on faith crisis, and I didn't think mm. any of them would be able to be turned into a hymn. So, <laughs> You know, yeah, with the culture now, probably not, but I don't see anything wrong with that. Like we talked about with Maggie, a wrestle with God is mm. talked about in our scriptures, but talking about a wrestle with God today, it's like, oh, you shouldn't talk about that. Like, hmm. That's really cool that you did that, Kim. Yeah, just the type of figurative poetry I do. I just didn't think it would work. Yours are very what? Very figurative. Like, Mm. it takes some thought in order to try and interpret them. They like to have things that are a little bit more obvious in what you're trying to say. My poetry rhymes, so that might be a good thing. But other than that, I probably would have rejected them all. You should make a faith crisis hymn book. That would be so cool. (laughs) For like the Mormons in the margins, you know, like the gray area Mormons, or even just the ones who just want some nuance, you know, that way we can sing about faith without needing to box ourselves into one particular definition of faith, you know? Yeah, we can use the hymn book when we're doing home church. Yes. (laughs) That's cool. Kim, what was it like having arthritis in your early 20s? Did you encounter any stigmas because of your age? Kind of. It's more like uh, ageism. Mm. Like I had it uh, on my mission, actually. Mm. It was pretty mild. I find that if I just got up wrong, uh, then I had pain in there. But if I just waited for, you know, 30 seconds or whatever, then it worked itself out. Uh, but as time mm. went on, it started to get worse. And I ended up getting diagnosed as a, from a podiatrist. Um, and he didn't seem to have any problems. He just said, this is what your ankle looks like. And your cartilage is, you know, going away. It's getting worn down. And so oh. this is how, how we define our arthritis. <clears throat> and then um, I had some problems with my hip shortly after our oldest was born. And it got really bad at one point. And I haven't really had much problems since. But there were a few times when I would stand up and I couldn't move forward because my hip was in so much pain. And there was one time when I collapsed in the bathroom floor because of it. And we went to the doctor and I had mentioned that I had arthritis and was wondering if it was related to that. And he says, you can't have arthritis. You're too young. <gasps> the doctor said that. The doctor is a GP. and we, We're not with that GP anymore. But yeah, it was, it was our general practitioner. And then as well, because it's so invisible, mm. it doesn't manifest in obvious ways most of the time. And so people don't see it there. I mean, if I'm on my feet too long and then my ankle gets sore, then I'll end up limping. And even then, if people see me limping at church, for example, no one ever thinks, oh, it must be arthritis. Oh, what happened to you? As if it's something new. Yeah. Most Mm -hmm. of the time when I'm dealing with arthritis in a church setting, it's just the discomfort I feel sitting in the pews or the other chairs or whatever. Yeah. Wow. And you said that your body doesn't respond to pain medication of any kind? None that I've tried, no. Hmm. If my ankle gets really sore, I will try uh, Tiger Balm, and that seems to provide some relief. It doesn't make the pain go away, but it makes it a little bit more bearable. 
I wonder wow. if that's related to your neurodivergence somehow. I've heard of other people where they also don't respond to pain medication, and I wonder if that's an, an overlooked aspect of neurodivergence in some way. It's possible. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that pain medication, you know, interferes with your pain receptors. And so mm-hmm. it, maybe there is some sort of connection there. It's hmm. interesting. Wow. What kind of accommodations do you currently receive at church or ward functions, like physical or neurological? And if none, what accommodations would be ideal for you at church? I've received no accommodations. There aren't really any accommodations in general. Even like I meet in a building that was built in the 70s. And if you have a wheelchair, Mm. you can't go to the microphone to speak. Like they have microphones there that they will bring to you, like during a fasting testimony meeting or whatever. Generally speaking, there aren't accommodations made for neurodivergent people or people with arthritis. Everybody's just expected to participate in whatever way they can. So in the endowment ceremony years ago, they made some changes. But prior to those changes, there were a lot more opportunities to stand in mm-hmm. as far as participating in the ceremony goes. That was beneficial to me because sitting too long made it really hard on my back and my Ah. hips, my knees. And so standing up every so often was beneficial to me. And when they took that away, it then became harder for me to sit in the temple. And in our temple, just wooden pews, back and seat. Mm, Oh. Mm. So there's no cushion at all. Yeah. That's surprising to me. Yeah. But the nice thing is that it's one of the few temples that still has a progressive endowment ceremonies so you move rooms ah. rather than just stay in one room so i mean it's not like we're sitting in the one room the entire time we are sitting more than we used to but we still get up and move into i think three yeah. rooms in total so that's still okay but it's it's difficult i don't mind getting asked to be the witness couple because then we sit at the front and there's more leg room and so i can stretch out my legs <laughs> wow that's interesting i'm glad you mentioned the temple because for me the less we get up and down, the easier it is to participate mm. in the temple. I wonder, do you know, Kim, if there's anything that says like this temple is the kind that is, what? how did you say it, that you move room to room? Progressive. Progressive. And some temples aren't. Like, I wonder if that information is listed with temples so people can know what kind of accommodations or what, what to expect because it would affect different disabilities differently. Yeah, there aren't very many temples. I think just a handful of temples like that. Almost all of them are one room. But my mm-hmm. understanding is once they're done the renovations, they're going to be the same as most of the other temples, or it's just going to be one room and you don't switch between. For me, it's funny because I had a very hard time staying awake with my narcolepsy during endowment sessions and being sleepy triggers my cataplexy. <laughs> and then I'd be wishing to sit back down because my legs are cataplexing. And then I would sit back down again and promptly fall back asleep. So for me, it was just like, there's no real compromise. If I sat the whole time, I'd be asleep the whole time. That I can't stand up the whole time because of my cataplexy either. They're tough for me too, like being in a darkened room. Yeah. And now with the new temple film formats where it's just still pictures that they just rotate through still pictures, that's even Mm -hmm. tougher for me. Mm -hmm. And so I generally will, when we go, I'll try to, you know, see how much of it I can recite, follow along. (laughs) 
yeah. engage with it. Otherwise, I would just fall asleep as well. I would just get yeah, too bored. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And I found that the new last videos that they had produced, like the live action videos, I found that Eve had a more prominent role. And so I really enjoyed mm-hmm. seeing the fresh perspective. And so that helped me to be engaged for the first few times that we went. Yeah. One interesting thing, my parents just went to Portland. They said it's normally like two hours long, the endowment, but when they went, it was an hour and nine minutes because of COVID changes. What? Yeah. Whoa! So I think that that would be really helpful with a lot of disabilities too, huh. is cutting the length of time sitting in the same room yeah. or even moving rooms. Yeah. And I don't know if that's every temple or just certain temples. And then obviously maybe it's going to be temporary because of COVID. Yeah. Switching to the new temple film format has allowed them to tighten up the length of the session. So I think ours is like an hour and a half or something now too, or just a little over an hour. Interesting. So, because you mentioned the hard chairs are difficult and you mentioned like lumbar support and stuff are overly soft chairs difficult as well. Like if you sit in a beanbag, will that be difficult? Like if you just bring a beanbag to the gym during church and be like, this is my chair, this is my accommodation and I'm going to sit in it while you give your talk. Uh, This is kind of, I'm kind of joking, but also kind of serious because I'm curious, like what kind of chairs are ideal that would support your back and your arthritis? So our youngest, another manifestation of her her ADHD, although she hasn't been diagnosed yet, but we're pretty confident she has it, is her, uh, her hyperactivity. She probably has the strongest manifestation of hyperactivity of any of our children. She mm. cannot sit still at all. Yeah. She's all constantly moving. And when she was younger, we would have to take her out of the sacrament so many times. And so when it was my turn to take her out, we'd go into the foyer and we would sit on furniture out there and that furniture is much more comfortable the couches out there yeah they're still firm but there's lots of cushion that would be Mm -hmm. awesome if the pews were like that but i'm sure that would be super expensive does your chapel have like they room the little microphone on it where people would take their kids if they were crying or whatever um, and could still listen to the talks while being in there and i actually Now I'm thinking about it. I don't know if all chapels have that because I think that would be a great accommodation. Maybe have one for children, then also another room for the neurodivergent people who just want to like sit in non-conforming ways or want to be able to stim and move around or pace while listening to talks, you know, where they can like relax a little bit, but without necessarily quote unquote disturbing the neuronormative people. Does your chapel have like a room like that? Uh, not a room specifically set aside for that purpose, but the Lee Society room, the priesthood room, mm-hmm. the pine room, the high council room, and maybe the young women room as well, have the capability to be able to listen in on the audio feed from the chapel. Okay. Um, and so I've taken advantage of that in the past when I've had to be out with my children who are, you know, manifesting their ADHD in various ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting because, yeah, growing up that was... That was always something that you could do if you had children, which, uh, strictly speaking, that is an accommodation, right? That's an accommodation for people who have children. Yeah, Kim, there's soft chairs in there for you in the mother's lounge. <laughs> That's the hat, Kim. You yeah. had to sneak into the mother's lounge. <laughs> they didn't have a parent's lounge. Yes, yeah, yes. What the heck? Yeah, why, why are we discriminating? Not, well, how do I say this? Well, it's an example of how we view a mother's role versus a father's role. Yeah, and I think, 
that no matter what gender or sex a parent is, they should be able to have a place where they can help or accommodate their child or just cool down themselves. Mm-hmm. It'd be yeah. cool if they just switched that to parents' lounge, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In our current chapel, it's off of the woman's washroom, to use air quotes. And so you can't really access it if you're not uh, a woman. So oh. I've been in chapels in the past where it's just been a room off mm-hmm. of a hallway. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the mother's lounge is off of the woman's bathroom is also problematic in itself. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's an extension of the bathroom. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just an extension of this idea that um, women can't breastfeed in public, for example. They should yeah. go to the bathroom, the bathroom to feed their children. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But I know some colleges and universities have specific rooms for people who have sensory difficulties to go study in or if they need to be alone. Like if I'm having a meltdown, I don't want to be around anybody else. So it'd be nice to have like not only like a room for children, but also like a sensory room for people uh, regardless of age. Even with adults, sometimes sensory needs and accommodations clash. Mm hmm. Anyway, it would take more planning, but like better to accommodate one or two or three even rooms for different purposes than like try to create one chapel that accommodates everybody. That would be really cool if there was something like that for disability. Yeah. I attended an evangelical service once years and years ago, and they had this room off of the the main worship area. It was at the back of the room and it had windows all around. So you can see the worship service. But it was like soundproof or something. And so you would pump the sound in so you could hear it. You could see everything, but nobody else could hear anything that was in that room. So you could bring your children in there Mm. if they're crying or whatever. It wouldn't, no one else would feel that it was disruptive, but you'd still be able to participate in the service. And that was kind of neat. That's very cool. cool. Kim, how would you describe your spirituality? I would say that it's a typical for a member of the church. My politics are radically left. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) I've undergone some transformation in where I align politically over the last almost 10 years or so. At the same time, I've undergone faith crises as well, and the two have overlapped. And so my viewpoint of the gospel specifically the LDS gospel, is that what sets the LDS church apart from other Christian denominations is this idea of Zion, this communal aspect where everybody is equal in every capacity, where there's no hierarchy, that everybody is treated the same, like the Nephites right after Jesus came to the Americas. Yeah. Uh, Everybody is treated the same. There's no rich, no poor. You know, no slaves, no slave owners. That's sort of where my my spirituality lies. And this goal of trying to bring about egalitarianism, or as the church mm-hmm. calls it, Zion. Mm-hmm. That makes your favorite scripture that you listed make a lot of sense. <laughs> Kim listed his favorite scripture as Acts 2, 44 through 45. Let me just read that for our audience. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. 
Can you share how this became your favorite scripture and more about what this means to you? Yeah, it's just, this goes back to what I was just talking about. And the whole idea of Zion too is like, it's something that you covenant in the temple to do is to try and bring about Zion, to bring about this state where everybody is treated equally, that there's no hierarchy, there's no inequality. It's fundamental to the gospel, not just that scripture, not just for Nephi, but even the way that Jesus taught. He taught us to love one another. He taught us to love even our enemies. And he set an example, too. Like Right when he was on the cross, he was forgiving the people who were harming him. It just shows us that that needs to be the foundation of how we approach the gospel, is try not to perpetuate and create this inequality, that we need to do whatever we can to break down the structures that our society has put in place that elevate some people over other people. Uh, you know, whether that's racism or ableism or sexism or patriarchy or homophobia or whatever it happens to be, it's incumbent on us as followers of Christ to tear down those structures. We love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's very powerful. Kim, we wanted to ask what brings you joy in life and what is frustrating? Honestly, I think my family brings me the most joy. Because I work from home, I spend most of my time with my family. Um, we homeschool our two youngest children, and I take them to the park every weekday. And we do various things at the park, play on playgrounds, or play hide-and-go-seek, or play tag, or, you know, these mm -hmm. very things. And, you know, it's really, I really enjoy those experiences. We made a snowman at the park because we got some snow this past week. And we have a Friday family film night every Friday where we just Ooh. sit down and watch. Yeah, we got a projector a couple years ago. We just project the movie onto the wall. It's pretty cool and just being a nice experience and just like being able to spend time with my family. And then probably the, just the most frustrating thing is just, you know, li living in today's society, you know, just seeing this constant inequality and the perpetuation of that inequality. And it just feels sometimes like it's pointless you know trying to change it all because it just seems like it's just constant and ever growing and any pushback against these entrenched systems seems to have little effect and so that's probably the most frustrating thing but i don't give up hope and just keep trying to do what i can in my own little ways to you know mm -hmm. make a difference i don't know that me as a single person can do very much but what a time to be in your line of work, Kim, because <laughs> your job to comment on political things. Could you tell us more about Ottawa's protests and blockades against COVID-19, the vaccine restrictions, more about your thoughts on that, what's going on over there? And that's far away from where you are, but it's big news. It's global news right now. It is. It's far away from us, but it has a, a local connection as well. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, it does look like it's people opposing, you know, COVID-19 public health protections. But there's a longer underlying story here. And so about two years ago, there was a group of people who tried to do something similar. It was another convoy. I can't remember what the name that they used, but it was in 2019. And they tried to organize a bunch of semis to go to Ottawa. But it was only a handful of semis this time and hardly anybody there. Just a few dozen people showed up. So it was nothing. 
but it was driven by a few people on the far right. And I'm not sure if you remember hearing about the Yellow Vest movement in France, where they were protesting some recent increases in, um, in prices and various goods and services in France. But people on the far right here in Canada took that movement and co-opted it in order to oppose immigration and things like that. Mm. But it wasn't very popular. And it sort of petered out. But then they used the last two years to learn from their mistakes. And they were able to develop a large social media following. And like I think three months after their trip to Ottawa in late 2019, they started bringing in public health protections related to COVID-19. So it was perfect timing. And over the next couple of years, they used the pandemic and the growing frustration with, you know, mask mandates and vaccine passports and whatnot to build general resentment and grow their social media followings. And then they were able to use that larger audience and platform to be able to create a much more successful convoy they were able to basically use broad disappointment with public health protections as a trojan horse in order to be able to spread their far-right messaging and so it ended up that a lot of the people who were involved were you know flying nazi flags and the confederate flags and other far-right symbols yeah. They're flying the Confederate flag in Canada? Yeah, there are some people who are flying Trump flags and American flags in the convoy protests as well. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the American flag being flown as a far-right symbol because some Americans would disagree with that symbolism. But I personally, uh, every time I see an American flag, I, I have kind of a gut reaction because of my involvement in Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. All the people who were chasing us, running us down, following us with guns were flying American flags. So it really it really is, uh, it's for many people, a, a far-right symbol but it's just really funny to hear you talk about that in Canada because it's so obviously you can't hide it like in America you can get away with being like oh I'm just American me, 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 me. you know like but in Canada if someone's flying an American flag right next to a Nazi flag and it's not even in America like hello wow that's wild yeah and actually they've been doing the same thing with Canadian flags so a lot of these people are flying Can really? Canadian flags yeah, and they're doing some solidarity rallies as well in various cities throughout the country on the weekends. And a lot of the people who are involved in those will be flying Canadian flags on their pickup trucks or their vehicles or whatever else. Wow. Basically, the Canadian flag is doing the same thing as the American flag was during the BLM rallies. I actually, I asked on Twitter a couple weeks ago how people feel about whenever they see a vehicle flying the Canadian flag and if that's changed in the last you know month mm. or two yeah and a lot of people were saying that before they they would see it and they think somebody you know maybe team Canada had won gold medal mm. at uh, the world junior hockey tournament or something like that but now whenever they see a vehicle flying a Canadian flag they automatically assume it's somebody on the far right Wow. Wow. Basically happened here as well. And pretty quickly too. Like that's something that people would have thought two months ago. Wow. Yeah. And so they've basically been using 
you know, the whole discomfort people have with public health protections as a cover in order to be able to push forward this far right political agenda. And so you, the vast majority of people who are supporting them don't see it that way. They just see it as, you know, freedom, quote unquote, bring back everybody's freedom. And they don't see the inherent, you know, white supremacy that's within the movement. And it's not portrayed in the mainstream media that way as well. It's You have to end on independent media to be able to get that message out. I'm really speechless because I didn't know all the history behind that. I just was really surprised that things had gone so far. Well, surprised. I feel like people in the United States are just as upset and willing to do extreme things, but I didn't know it was stemmed mm. in all of that as well. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of the Proud Boys. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. They followed us around in Utah. Yeah, they're started by a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did not know that. A Canadian who moved to the United States. Yeah, so we've been exporting white supremacy for a long time. Our biggest export is oil. Our second biggest export is white supremacy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm, like, cringing and laughing at the same time. That's <laughs> awful. Oh, my gosh. Well, on that note, thank you, Kim. Goodbye. I'm kidding. <laughs> Wow, wow. (laughs) We really appreciate you, Kim. Thank you so much. We would love to know what platforms you're on for any or everything you want, you would like to share. I'm very curious. Yeah, you can follow me on most of the popular social media platforms. Just look up my name and you'll be able to find it. K-I-M and then S-I-E-V-E-R. I'm generally the only person with that name that you'll find on those platforms. So if you just search for my name, you'll find me on there. Twitter and TikTok are the ones that I have the most followers on. And then Facebook. You got to be careful because I have my personal account and then my political page where I share all my political stuff as well. So you just got to make sure you like my page instead of send me a friend request. <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested in checking out my new website, you just kimsiever.ca. Okay. It's just regional political news. Yay. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for supporting Holy Human in our work and let us know if you want to be interviewed. We're always looking for people to interview on our podcast or if you want us to cover any particular topics with disability and neurodivergence, we're going to start trying to do more episodes like that as well. Holy Human is spelled W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon if you want to support our podcast financially and help us stay on the mics. Oh, and we will also have a little bit of bonus content on Patreon this week from this interview. I couldn't fit everything in that we wanted to fit in from this interview in this episode, so we're putting that additional content on Patreon. Be sure to look for it there this week. We also just started a new page on Facebook for disabled and neurodivergent people specifically. If you want to connect with us there, uh, just search Holy Disabled and Neurodivergent Humans. Also, thank you to Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. 